This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Tony Gosling, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Hi there, Jeremy. Uh, I think, you know, I'd really like to congratulate you for getting me to do something which has been quite awkward over a few days, which is to pull together my ideas on secret societies. It's a subject which first, I suppose, I became aware of when I was a teenager, uh, someone telling me about the Freemasons uh, in um, Whitmore Road in Bromley. I remember it vividly and getting a shiver down my spine. Uh, and so, you know, the, the idea of now, whatever it is, uh, 45 years later, pulling together some of these ideas uh, about Freemasonry and other secret societies, that's the most probably the one people will think of first when they think of a secret society. Uh, but of course, there's much more to it than that. And I suppose my mentor, if you want to call him that, in this world uh, was a terrific journalist who I remember his voice very much on BBC radio in the 1980s. Uh, Martin Short. I got to know him very well, actually, uh, over the years. And he was the author of a book called Inside the Brotherhood. Uh, he had really made uh, several years work of investigating Freemasonry and its influence on government and uh, law enforcement, that sort of thing, you know, uh, but uh, a lovely guy uh, died sadly last year. Uh, and he and this is the difference in the media today is he not only wrote this book inside the brotherhood which was uh he the, the previous book to that in the 1980s uh was written by stephen knight uh and stephen had written a book about jack the ripper which was a great success and a lot of people came to stephen a young man in his 30s uh with lots of information about freemasonry because they had for example been booted out of freemasonry they were ex-masons themselves or be, being victims and uh and stephen then after publishing the brotherhood died uh, rather mysterious circumstances but martin got all the papers everything that had been sent in to stephen after the uh, publication of his initial book the brotherhood so he wrote this about three times thicker than stephen's book called inside the brotherhood uh, and, and and to me martin shaw i think has and then he did a three-part series for itv which you can still find online unfortunately youtube of uh, uh, nuked my channel, which had it on there, uh, but it's called Inside the Brotherhood and it's an ITV three-part series which looks at the Freemasons' infiltration of government and particularly of the whole law enforcement protests, uh, the judiciary, the police uh, uh, and the government, the Home Office, which oversees the judiciary and the police and the Department for Justice and all this sort of thing. So they're everywhere, according to M Martin. And, but he's documented this all in done it, this book, Inside the Brotherhood, and the TV series, which I would thoroughly recommend if people want to get up to speed on Freemasonry, uh, uh, they, they take a look at. I don't know, well, I didn't know your work up until I was reading uh, The Bilderberg Group by Daniel Esselin, and he cited your research. First and foremost is how old are secret societies? <laughs> well, it's a good question, and I think it goes right back to the dawn of time. Uh, to uh, particularly to the Canaanites, um, the Phoenicians. If you look at these organizations, they, I think, right early on uh, in uh, civilization, if you can call it that, 
what we had is we had selfish people who wanted to power uh, and they developed methods for keeping their their um, small groups secret and also to stop people in those groups divulging to anybody including the authorities what they were um, planning within those groups so you know I, I think it's Carl Jung said uh, uh, the maintenance of secrets is like a psychic poison it alienates the possessor from the community and of course that's absolutely right these people set themselves aside from the ordinary members of the public you know sort of people back in 2000 BC or who, wherever and they wanted to set up a kind of political priesthood to run everything and they rather liked the idea that they could direct society and I suppose con uh, ordinary members of the public so the Phoenicians um, you know were connected up with the Egyptians they were basically like a kind of maritime intelligence service for the uh, for the uh, pharaohs uh, and they went right around the you know particularly started to dominate the Mediterranean then they went right out round um, up to Scandinavia their language is quite clear clearly linked to the Scandinavian runes uh, and the uh, the Phoenicians were uh, practiced child sacrifice uh, they were absolutely ruthless at the top uh, and also uh, many believe and I would say I'm one of them that does believe went to the Americas probably about 2000 BC in fact Philip Beale uh, a few years ago three or four years ago built a Phoenician galley sailed it across the Atlantic and I asked him I said well Philip how was it how did you get on and he's fine you know easy and there's also re uh, re remains of the Phoenicians being found uh, in places like the Bahamas um, so they were way way ahead of Columbus and way ahead of uh, John Cabot I think in discovering America so there was a, a sort of secret network they kept all this stuff very very close to their chest so the general public didn't know about America the Phoenicians did and their successors I think went on uh, over centuries really to keep this hidden secret knowledge never shared it with the public until they got to the uh, 1400s late 1400s early 1500s and then they made a decision right we're going to colonize America so we can't keep it secret anymore so anyway I think that's that's basically the origin uh, then you have the third the, the a little bit before that actually you've got the Templars very much a powerful secret society uh, again posing as a, a religious society there they are supposed Christians except if you look at the uh, oaths that they took etc the Templars uh, well they were bankers for world's first international bankers were uh, um, rumbled basically by Philip the Fair the King of France so I think there that it's those sorts of origins that, that we can see these secret societies coming from uh, and uh, one of the uh, the uh, best books is uh, called Born in Blood, which it shows the connection that the when the Templars were um, uh, excommunicated by the Pope and they were um, banned by uh, the French royalty, by uh, by the uh, Catholic Church and by the English. They were banned, by the way, by the Scottish kings. Uh, I think what happens is a lot of the Templars ran off up to Scotland from La Rochelle in France and um, then uh, you've got Freemasonry the lodges of course the whole idea of lodges a few years later and the order of the garter started just after the extinguishing of the Templars and the lodge is uh, initially originally the lodge meant somewhere that a Templar could secretly spend the night without getting into trouble so it's somewhere that they could secretly lodge lodge themselves 
Uh, and yeah, Born in Blood um, is one of the best books on the links between the Templars and the Masons today. Of course, there are other secret societies, other cults, um, such as witchcraft, uh, Satanism. But I think they're all uh, at ultimately, although they've got different, many different um, things on the periphery, at the centre, they're all basically about selfishness. They're all about, uh, you know, trying to make sure that... Um, uh, you have a kind of counter narrative to the Torah, to the Old Testament, uh, and then, and I suppose now the New Testament too. Uh, they uh, a lot of them are into this whole idea of a. Uh, when I say selfishness, I mean we're now getting to the stage, and I think in the old days these people really did think they were gods. They're absolutely anti-god and pro-individual. So uh, that that's the thing that links them, I think, and also. Uh, you know, you've got many different organisations, but they're interlinked. So, for example, the head of one coven uh, in in witchcraft is going to be part of another coven, and there'll be a head of that coven too, uh, uh, and they're interlocked and interlinked, something that um, uh, Margaret Murray, in her amazing book, The God of the Witches, which I've been re reading recently, uh, explains how these interlocking covens actually work, you know, and, and have very, very strict hierarchy. So there, in a nutshell, I think is the origins quite where we are at today with all this, uh, you know, because Freemasonry was supposed to have started in 1717. If you ask them, that's what they'll tell you. It's quite clearly well before that. Um, I mean, the evidence is clear in his in his uh, autobiography, or no, I think it, yeah, it's, his, it's his diaries, actually, Elias Ashmole, who he, he talks about being initiated during the English Civil War. So that's what about for 50, 60 years 70 years previously uh, as a Freemason. So the Freemasonry was definitely going around uh, in the 16, through the 1600s and, uh, and, and, and existed well before they officially admit to. A lot of the secret societies are interlinked, um, which makes me think that they have overlapping ambitions and goals and, and desires. Um, but are, are a number of them also competing? Uh, well, I look, I don't believe so. I think what happens is uh, they will be pretending to compete. I, I mean, I, in my book, well, um, if I can plug it, which is mm. called The Siege of Heaven Reader, the, I've done three books uh, which came out during the first lockdown. I was so annoyed with all of this. I thought, let's just get here. Yeah, it's a time to sit on the computer and get these books out. Um, it, 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 the Siege of Heaven I wrote, which is a compilation of my articles, which includes the one I sent you, which is about uh, the Civil War and the background to the witchcraft, begin, you know, uh, the witch trials which were going on before the Civil War and the battle going on over this um, after the Reformation. Uh, and so that book is called The Siege of Heaven, which is a whole load of articles, including the ones now you're not allowed to see on the Internet, which I did for RT over a period of about five or six years uh, in the mid uh, the mid I think it was between about uh, 20, uh, 2012 and about 2015, maybe a bit longer than that. Uh, so that's the Siege of Heaven. Then I did a book which was called The Siege of Heaven Reader, which is really just an anthology, stuff I've come across over the years to do with secret societies, to do with hidden government, secret government, which takes you right from the time of round about the Civil War and talks about Oliver Cromwell and his secret society that he set up in order to uh, kill the king because he realised, you know, listen, if, if the king is allowed to live, he's going to have my head, you know. So Cromwell had to get rid of the king. But he couldn't, you know, then he had to find some way to set up a kind of false judicial process in order to uh, have Charles I beheaded. So I thought that was a quite an interesting place to start because it was the beginning 
of the expansion of the um, British Empire, uh, the enclosures, the Industrial Revolution that came after the Civil War. It's a good place to start. And, and one of the little things I look at there uh, is this um, society called the Other Club, which Winston Churchill was part of. And coming back to your question, I was absolutely amazed at looking at the Other Club, and it's in this uh, the, the Siege of Heaven Reader, the extract from the book, uh, is that all of the factions in the during the Second World War were in this club. So, you know, you've got you've got the Churchillians, you've got the fascists uh, also in the same club. So Churchill wasn't a fascist. Well, at least we didn't think he was. But there he was going to this weekly meeting. Uh, I think it was at the Savoy in London, uh, chatting with all of the real opposition. So I think this is what we're looking at here is with some of these cults, they are uh, opposing each other. So although actually they're at the top, they are linked. So maybe one person from one of the cults and another person from another one of the cults uh, will be have a, have a connection which other people in the in, in the first ones don't necessarily know about. Uh, and uh, but anyway, the main important thing is the blood oaths that seal people into these into these cults and make it absolutely clear. If you want to join, if you want to join one of these, you need to swear an oath that if you divulge any secrets of this organisation uh, to anybody outside the cult, that we can kill you. So that's the basic oath that they swear. And it's the same in Freemasonry. It's the same in, in witchcraft. Uh, and it's called a blood oath. And it is a way of sealing yourself off from the rest of society and saying, well, actually, I'm more loyal to a little clique here than I am to the rest of humanity. Now, obviously, someone that's sworn an oath like that should never be allowed anywhere near power, whether it's a nuclear button or whether it's a lawmaking judicial process. But my feeling is and my experience and knowledge teaches me that uh, there are this, this, these cults have now got very close to infiltrating most of the main organs of power in the Western world. Uh, and possibly in places like China, too, with the triads. You know, this is one of the things that worries me about U.S. Freemasonry. Obviously, Washington and the rest of them, many, every, pretty much every U.S. president has been a Freemason. Uh, and you've got this, uh, something similar going on in China with the secret societies over there, where uh, it's very difficult to imagine that these people have got the confidence of ordinary Chinese folk. Um, of course they haven't. It's a, virtually a dictatorship. Chairman Mao is actually, even though they're supposed to not like religion, um, uh, he was Mao was funded by uh, Yale University, uh, and his bookshops in the 1920s were funded by Yale. Now we've got President Xi, who behaves basically like the Pope. I mean, you're not allowed to criticise the guy. You can't get anything wrong. Uh, and so, yeah, I think you, you ask a good question. They do oppose each other, but at the very top, I think they're all linked uh, and. They are coordinated from the top. I mean, it's amazing here actually being in New Zealand uh, because we can see exactly the same laws being passed as been being passed in other parts of the Western world. I think most of the West now is, you know, is managed by these uh, organisations. They are passing similar. I mean, for example, there's a uh, something in the UK called uh, the Online Safety Bill, right, which is restricting freedom of speech on the internet and um, something you can say something that's legal but. Uh, harmful that can then become illegal uh, because you're causing harm even though it's a legal thing to say and they've got something exactly the same sort of law that they're trying to get through here in New Zealand now too you know there's lots and lots of parallels the zero carbon agenda uh, in Holland is exactly the same thing to the farmers that they're trying to introduce here in New Zealand at the same time so don't tell me that they're not coordinating these things can it be argued that um, there's an overplay of uh, of the 
influence of some of these societies. For example, I know a couple of people who are Freemasons and they're very nice people. Oh, look, this, you, what you're seeing is you're seeing the periphery. You know, this isn't, if you look at uh, one of the English cities, I mean, I know Somerset fairly well, but say, for example, look at the, the city of Bristol where I live. I mean, it was a Templar port. Uh, it's got a very hot, what they call high Templar Freemasonry. There's something like 40 or 50 lodges in Bristol. And you'll find there are only a handful of those lodges of the lower number lodge uh, where the top Freemasons hang out. The rest of them are really just window dressing and they're used for recruiting. So if you want somebody uh, who's in a particular line of business, uh, and you're another Freemason in the city, you can use that person. Well, you might actually potentially use that person and ask them to do something which might not be legal. It might even be legal, but it might not be ethical. And so uh, as as someone is, gets known within Freemasonry, as someone who will do these unethical things, they are likely to be promoted up to a higher level in the organisation, maybe up to one of the lower, asked to join one of the lower number lodges, which are the higher, more, more powerful lodges. Uh, and so that's basically the way it works. So very much like, um, you know, Satanism is, is, a, is the way it works in Satanism is if you go out and do, uh, for example, a rape and a murder and you get away with it, uh, then you'll be promoted within the organization. And they really encourage that. I've been looking recently at this uh, thing called the Order of the Nine Angles, which was pointed out to me by the by David Livingston, who, who wrote the the book, I think, on transhumanism. It's transhumanism, the history of a dangerous idea. Uh, and this group, the Order of the Nine Angles, that he talks about, I mean, it's an amazing, it is a satanic group. It's, a, it's basically, I call it satanic gladio. What they do is they do these terrorist acts, uh, and that is a way of uh, earning uh, their spurs in the organisation. Uh, amazingly, uh, the British government, the Home Office, have seen fit not to ban it. Um, and they're, they're, if you look at, for example, the attack, uh, on the Christchurch mosque, you can see all these uh, Nazi satanic symbols all over the guy's gun, everywhere uh, on his manifesto. There's a lot of this talk. Um, and it seems obvious to me that he has followed this order of the nine angles. I mean, they said, of course, that uh, Brenton Tarrant was a lone wolf. They haven't properly looked into it at all, because it seems to me pretty obvious that he's um, part of this organization. Now, you know, that's that's uh, another level to the sort of Freemason you're talking about. Uh, but I think when it comes to, um, uh, you know, you've got this you've got this uh, directing force at one level, but then you've also got small operational cells and then you've also got businesses, small businessmen, etc., who are very nice and very friendly. They're used to doing favours for friends, but maybe one or two of them can be persuaded to do a bit more than that. And that way they might get promoted to a more powerful, a lower number lodge. By virtue of the fact that a secret society is meant to be secret, do you think there are quite a lot that we don't know about that are that are influential? Well, look, um, we started off by talking about the Bilderbergers, didn't we? Mm. And I mean, that to me is almost a perfect example of something which, I mean, certainly when I, because uh, I worked working for the BBC when I finished working there, when I was elbowed out, basically, uh, the... Uh, I came across some of this in the roundabout the uh, mid 1990s. I had a friend who had a database, and um, 
uh, I'd met someone at a protest site that I was organising, a, a land occupation in London, and he came and said, what about the Bilderberg? They, anyway, I scribbled it down, wrote it in my book, and about a week later I had access to this big Reuters article database and uh, put this Bilderberg, asked my friend to put Bilderberg in, and he sent me this old floppy disk with a whole load of stuff about the Bilderberg meetings and these lists of people who were attending them. And I didn't know anything about them at the time. And and at the top of it, I could not, I mean, looked at it, it said, it said press release, not for publication. So some many editors obviously would have known about the Bilderbergs, but it says here on here, you don't publish this, you know. So they're, they're sending a message, aren't they? Uh, look, this isn't, you know, you don't write about this, this is happening. And we would rather you didn't write about it. And obviously anybody that's in on that is not going to annoy them. They're very powerful people. I would, you know, you go through the list. And as I did when I first got these things, these people control most of the money in the Western world. And we're supposed to just uh, not talk about it as journalists. Uh, what is the, what is, is it, is there any point in having a profession of journalists? Uh, journalism when you can't actually do uh, report on something something like that i mean it is it's the perfect kind of conspiracy theory but you know very very few people i think if you go back to the mid 1990s had ever heard of the bilderbergers much of the criticism of them if you went on the early days of the internet was was really maniacal far right and and genuinely anti-semitic saying, oh, this is a big Jewish conspiracy, look, all these Jews, blah, blah, blah. Of course, it wasn't. Rockefeller's, uh, you know, Baptist and well, supposedly a Christian. And, and I did actually get to meet David Rockefeller at one of these Bilderberg conferences, which was really nice because he was a very charming man. I was thinking he was going to be some sort of like evil guy with horns or something, but he wasn't. He was a really lovely bloke, uh, but he didn't want to talk about anything to do with the conference. And that's the wall of secrecy. I asked him about the, uh, you know, why don't they let more press in? And he started talking about the local fish restaurant, you know. Um, but th I think there's been changes at the Bilderberg uh, since we've, uh, since Rockefeller's gone. I mean, he was a big oil guy. We've now got the big tech people. We've got the PayPal types. We've got the, you know, the Facebook types, the social media owners, the Twitter owners, people like that seem to be now dominating the thinking there. And obviously they've got links to all the military and the, you know, people that like taking over resources around the world. So I think that's a good example of something which is there. If you really search for it and go and have a look, it was there. It was there for people to look at in, in 1990. Uh, it's just that people don't know about it because the journalists won't write about it. The the main problem here is, is, is a very simple problem, and that is that many of the main editors are there. You know, the, the, the general manager of News International is there and his editors know he's there and they're not going to talk about him being there because, you know, they might lose their job. Uh, the Economist magazine, those people are very powerful within the Bilderberg, but they don't write about the Bilderberg. Uh, and uh, and even if they do, they, they, they will just try and make, a, make out it's all sort of, sort of cosy little club or whatever. There was one brilliant piece in the um, in the Observer. I think it was around about the early 90s, late 80s, where the where the Christmas uh, editor, because the main editor was off for a couple of weeks, did a brilliant piece about it in the Observ in the Economist, uh, and Will Hutton also did write something. So there are there are these groups out there which are they're secret, but they're not secret, if you know what I mean. So mm -hmm. they they are hidden, but they're not really talked about. I'd, also, I think it's really important talking about the secret societies to talk about Cecil Rhodes. I mean, you're down there in South Africa. 
And his work in the around 1900, when he died in his will, in creating these organisations, uh, the, the Royal Institute for International Affairs, uh, Chatham House in London, the Council on Foreign Relations in the United States, which basically were secret society organised uh, lobby groups and are very powerful secret society organised lobby groups uh, for foreign policy for the United States and British, British business. And they eclipse the Foreign Office, the State Department. In fact, they've basically colonised and taken over policy at the Foreign Office and the State Department. And, you know, this is something which is mirrored right across the Western world. As our governments are becoming more and more indebted, these big private businesses, people like the World Economic Forum, are basically taking over policy. Uh, and they are deciding on what, what policies there's going to be. And, of course, the funders of the parties, both in the United States and the UK and elsewhere, uh, are part of these groups and they fund the parties to implement the policy which is developed through these secret societies effectively and that they would say they're not but of course they use the Chatham House rules you're not allowed to be open and report on what you hear and see at one of these meetings it is uh, you know it's a very closed closed club and uh, you won't get invited if you start to speak out of turn now that is no way to you know obviously to run foreign policy and that's why we're in this ridiculous situation now with this war in ukraine uh, which is being fueled by you know the western governments and as really as a way to try to destabilize and and regime change in moscow what the hell do they think they're playing at uh, and this isn't something that anybody in the United States or Britain has voted for or anywhere else in Europe. And yet, you know, so that's the effect of the secret societies, I think, is to create these bodies which are secretly influencing and directing policy. And when you've got NATO in the background of that and the Bilderbergers are very con closely connected with, with NATO, they are basically the same NATO countries, but they're all the most powerful people in those countries, including the bankers, the media, etc. They're all pushing with this anti Russia line, uh, and it's it's getting to the point where uh, it's become virtually Orwellian, you know. So we're supposed to just think that Russia's done something absolutely terrible because we're told it on the TV, uh, and we're, we're living in this kind of ridiculous propagandized world. But look at the origin of the anti-Russia, uh, Russophobic policy. Uh, it's it's the uh, Council on Foreign Relations, it's the Royal Institute for International Affairs, and it's the media, and it's the Bilderbergers. So you know these organisations, none of who would anyone vote for any of these people? No, of course not. Um, is there a trend within secret societies um, that is, let's say, uh, I don't want to say atheist, but um, anti anti God, anti anti theist? Well, I think most definitely, you know, this is something that's happened with Freemasonry over the centuries, is that uh, it began in England, for example, as a very Christian thing. You know, the idea was that it was the, all the ministers were, well, slowly but surely, that's been lost. I mean, I got to know a very nice uh, former Knights Templar Mason uh, who was booted out uh, because he was basically too much of a nice guy and someone wanted to take over his lodge. Uh, his name is Ian Mattison. And, uh, you know, th what you've got there is uh, the change in the organisational, uh, the, the uh, sort of zeitgeist of the organisation is changing. So Freemasonry is getting rid of all its principal Christian leaders within the lodges, the, the masters of the lodges. Uh, and slowly but surely, of course, that filters down through the rest of the organisation. But it's most definitely pro-individualistic. Um, there's no, I don't think, although they talk about you must believe in a God, uh, I don't think there's any kind of real 
certainly belief in the God of the Bible, uh, the Christian God, the Judeo-Christian God or Islam. But they always talk about God. The question is, what and who is God to the Freemasons? And I think this is just another game they're playing, really, uh, in order to try and... Well, I mean, it's a religious cult, isn't it? I mean, you know, you've got a lot of talk within the lodge, within the various rituals of uh, biblical uh, ideas. Uh, classical mythology also pops into some of them. And, um, you know, they're, they're, but is, do they really believe in God at all? You know, this is another question that the religious cult, most definitely that is they are, you know, they are. But what is the religion? I don't think even most of the Freemasons, and of course, as you, you progress up through the system, you're finding that everything that you previously learned was a whole load of tosh. It's rather like a giant Ponzi scheme. And by the way, that people do have to give quite a lot of money into the Freemasons, especially if you're down the lower levels. You're not going to be making much money. You're going to be basically uh, you know, funding the whole organization. Uh, yeah, so I don't think that, yeah, I think that's, I go, I'm very much with Catherine Austin Fitz at the moment. That's what we're witnessing, is we're witnessing a, a, a war on God. And that this is a organ, people who don't believe in God getting very well organized and infiltrating and taking over these uh, positions. There was a, I th I'm trying to remember the name of the report, but there was a report by Scotland Yard, believe it or not, about 10 years ago, which was reported in The Independent. Was it maybe Project Riverside around the same time as that, which proved that Freemasonry was had infiltrated uh, into the Scotland Yard of the police and the Home Office and that it had to be rooted out, you know. So, but what was done about it? Nothing. I mean, the guys who wrote the report probably just sacked. Uh, there was also a, a, a big thing in the church in the 1990s, early 1990s, in the, the Anglican Church, saying we, you know, we should be banning Freemasons from being ministers because they're, you know, they're swearing these blood oaths. But this is another thing about Russia, right? Which is I'm cu coming to, is the Orthodox Church in Russia uh, is the only one of the three main churches on earth. That is to say, the Orthodox, the Catholics, and the Protestants. I mean, there are lots of others, obviously, but. You know, historically, that's the succession. The Orthodox Church have this thing called the oath crime. And it comes from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, never swear an oath. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything else comes from the devil. So he's making it very clear there that the oaths of initiation of all these various organizations are wrong. And they're cutting you off from him. They're cutting you off from God if you do them. Uh, and, of course, most people don't think that when they're doing these. I, was, I remember being told uh, by Ian Mattison uh, that the, sometimes when they're initiating people into Freemasonry, they would be trembling. Their whole body would be shaking. And he wanted very much to do a make a film. Unfortunately, I'm a radio person, not a filmmaker. But he wanted to do a film of the uh, actual initiation and the words used in it, because, yeah, he said people used to get really frightened. It's almost as if they had a sixth sense. They knew they were losing their soul. They were selling their soul. They were selling their uh, own um, personal will to the organization they were joining. And, and of course, that's a very, very important moment for anyone that's, that's joining. They're basically selling out their family. They're selling out their you know, children, their relatives. They're selling out their work colleagues to a cult, to a religious cult. Are there any secret societies in your mind that we should know about and be worried about and keep an eye on well, <laughs> satanists maybe 
you know. Uh, I think also, you know, witchcraft is an interesting one because I think that's, that's, there's lots of levels of that. I mean, it's basically pantheism, which is worshipping nature, which, you know, actually on the surface of it, it's, there's nothing wrong with that at all. You know, why not? Uh, you know, look after plants, look after animals. I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with that at all. But turning it into a worship is a whole nother thing. Uh, and also within that, uh, people are then recruited up to uh, towards from the white magic to the black magic. Uh, and again, this is in this is in my Siege of Heaven Reader book, which is available as an e-book. It's even available free. Uh, if people want to, which which has got a kind of watermark in it, which might be annoying to some, but at least it's free, it's there. Uh, the writer, Dennis Wheatley, uh, wrote a lot about this. He did a, a similar thing to me, in fact. He did a kind of anthology on essays on um, uh, on black magic and witchcraft. And he's, he makes it pretty clear in there that uh, the whole point of white magic is just to recruit people into black magic. He saw it as warring powers. He uses that word. And you can find some, there's a very few recordings of Dennis Wheatley around. I mean, I don't know if people have even heard. Have you heard of him? Mm -mm, no. No, because because he was one of the most popular novelists in the world in the 1970s, 1960s and 1970s. In fact, they made a film of one of his most um, popular occult no novel of the 20th century, which was called The Devil Rides Out, which is a terrific tale about this young girl who gets lured into a cult and and her friends, male friends, then try and save her. But you see, she's being slowly sucked in and it's like a tug of war. To get it. Can we actually stop this girl being sucked into this? And the thing is, Wheatley, uh, he went to dinner with people like Alistair Crowley, with Harry Price, who were the big sort of Satanists and witchcraft people of their time to research his novel, you know, so he knew what he was talking about, Wheatley. It's a cracking yarn and it's a fantastic film. I think it was Hammer put it out in 1972. Uh, but it just shows you how much power the press and the media have through uh, the, the books, the magazines, the television, how Dennis Wheatley, the most popular novelist of the 1970s, is now forgotten, you know amazing really but you can still get his uh, still get his books and I, I mean i've read his most of his historical novels now as well uh he's a bit of a sort of 20th century walter scott uh walter scott sort of invented the historical novel you know going into history and just kind of making a fiction around the facts uh and turning it into a ripping yarn uh and uh, so wheatley was very good at all this ian fleming of course is also another writer that was effectively in a secret society he was working for naval intelligence uh, they wasn't allowed to talk about that at any time and if he did he would be nabbed under the official secrets act and one of the tales i heard was that wheatley spoke to because because after the second world war um ian fleming started hitting the bottle and started drinking dennis wheatley said to him look you don't have to bottle all this stuff that you've got up to in the war you don't have to bottle it up write it out as it, get it out of your system as a novel and they can't touch you yeah so that's what i think why how where we got the james bond novels from and the james bond films is because fleming realized after chatting with dennis wheatley who by the way both of them were right on the inside in the intelligence war in through the second world war uh, uh he i think wheatley was yeah wheatley was a deception planner which is now what you call a psychological warfare officer and, uh, and so then we've got all of this stuff to do with the Nazis, Moonraker. We've got a whole load of fascinating stuff. I think, you know, the, the Bond films, the Bond novels, certainly the most, the early ones, 
are brilliant and, and they give you a real insight into the way power works. What he's doing is he's showing you, look, don't look at the big main powers. There's other people behind the scenes who are getting these powers to fight each other. And that was the, the main main message in, in uh, Fleming and what makes the film so gripping. Uh, is that this is really, I think, you know, he was saying this is what's going on. And, and as a result of um, uh, my research into the Bilderberg, just carrying on from, you know, you mentioned mm-hmm. Daniel Estelin, some of the work that I did, he kind of inspired me a bit to actually get into this, was looking at what what was behind the first meeting of the Bilderbergers. You look at these people in 1955, what you've got now we know, they didn't know at the time, but we, we now know that there were at least three or four uh, German Bilderbergers in the very first Bilderberg meeting who had been deeply involved in the Nazi war effort, in the propaganda effort, in the confiscation of Jewish um, goods, this sort of thing. And and yet they had managed to escape um, scrutiny in, in the five years since the end of the Second World War in 1955. And so they're sitting down with these kind of innocent, smiling faces, and yet they were war criminals, potentially. You know, people who maybe should have been tried at the end of the war, sitting down with Hugh Gateskill, the leader of the Labour Party, uh, to, in order to try and sort of, oh, we're, we're, we're just having a nice little chat about what's going to happen in the post-war world. And, you know, and uh, we're really nice people and just have a cup, a cup of tea and have, come and have a drink. And you can see Hugh Gateskill from the British Labour Party kind of looking uncomfortable at the back of the room in their first picture in an old black and white photo from 1955. Uh, and so I, I realised that there was something quite important going on here. Uh, obviously, NATO, which was uh, had, had had been born before that, this was very connected with that. A lot of the same people were involved in NATO. And so I did a bit of digging around, and I realised that uh, there were a, a couple of figures, Prince Bernhard of the Netherlands, who was chairman of Bilderberg in 1955, for 20 years until he got booted out. In a, He was actually a Nazi agent. Uh, and he was at working over in Britain uh, at the time of the um, uh, after D-Day, uh, supposedly as a Dutch liaison officer. But he was a he was a former SS officer. He had been before the war. He married into the Dutch royal family, and then he skipped and he jumped over to the British Army and became a liaison officer. So he was, you know, looking at him, he looks very much like a Nazi agent. And the reason. I say that is because it was the Dutch, uh, he sent a Dutch um, spy into Holland uh, in September 1944 to warn uh, the Germans of the plans that the British had to uh, take Arnhem. This is uh, Montgomery's Operation Market Garden. Uh, The film is a bridge too far. Uh, and so you had him. You also had Lord Carrington, who was another chairman of Bilderberg, in this same battle, sitting in a tank as a young man, uh, as a captain in the Guards Armoured Division. I think he was the um, Grenadier Guards, sitting on a bridge at Nijmegen. Now, this is amazing because the Germans were going to blow this bridge up, but they didn't. His tank managed to get across. And they're sitting there at Arnhem. All these British soldiers are dying at Arnhem. Uh, this is, of course, where the first Bilderberg meeting took place, just in, in Arnhem at Ooster Bay. And um, then as the, as the British are being mangled and mauled by the Nazis in Arnhem, Carrington's sitting there in his tank waiting for the British to die before he goes, goes forward. And I even managed to interview a guy called Moffat Barris, who's an American paratrooper, who came over to Carrington in his tank and he pointed his, he said, he told me, he pointed his Tommy gun at Carrington's head and he said, get down that road now before I blow your blankety blank head off. Because there's, your British soldiers are dying down that road 
uh, and you're just sitting here doing nothing. He says, oh, I'm sorry. I'm just waiting for my orders. And then he, he actually, Moffat Burris told me he, he put his lid down on the tank so that Moffat Burris couldn't shoot him, you know. So this is Carrington betraying his mates down the road. Uh, and I also spoke to Tony Hibbert, who was the brigade major at the bridge in Arnhem for this battle, also now passed away. Uh, but Tony explained to me that they could hear the tanks. They thought they were coming. Slowly but surely, the Germans mangled these Brits in the 1st Airborne Division. And um, then, then once they were all dead, so then Carrington says, oh, OK, it's time to go forward. And they managed to go forward a few hundred yards. And the Germans had obviously formed a blocking line. They had artillery, you know, landing on their heads and they couldn't go any further. So this battle was deliberately lost, I think, by the spy Prince Bernhard, who was at the Bilderberg, and also uh, the traitor, um, Lord Carrington, who and, and his his units, sh which should have gone down and rescued these guys in Arnhem. And, 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 I, and, and, and I think is it... Um, Richard Kershaw, I think his name's Richard Kershaw, as a colonel in the British Army, spoke to the German commander on, who was there at the time, Heinz Harmel, and he spoke to him before he died. Uh, and he said, oh, yeah, well, why did the British not go? They, they really missed a trick there. Uh, if they'd have carried on in their tank, there'd have been nothing to stop them. And I looked at this battle as, you know, someone who's got to done a little bit of military history. And you can see right through here, you've got traitors there, people who are deliberately losing that battle. And you're going to ask me next, what was the point of losing the battle at Arnhem next mm. to Osterbeek, uh, where the first Bilderberg meeting happened? The point was to give the Germans another six or eight months to sort out all their, squirrel away all their wealth in Switzerland, in Argentina. They, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't, they needed a bit of extra time because what had happened was deals were being done with the Brits. And uh, the, my book, The Traitors of Arnhem, goes on to look at Ian Fleming and uh, John Ainsworth Davis's trip into Berlin at the end of the war to get Martin Bormann out from Berlin on the canals. They had a woman in uh, with Russian uniform <laughs> in their in their canoes, and when the Russians were challenging them, she'd stand up and shout in Russian at the soldiers, you know, and then they carry on. And um, so eventually, uh, Desmond Morton met them in the British sector on a river. And Bormann, who was a signatory to all of the wealth the Nazis had collected during the Second World War, uh, was brought to the UK and eventually he ended up in in um, in South America. So this is the thing I think I've added to the Bilderberg understanding is that the reason they had that first, the reason it's called Bilderberg, because the Bilderberg Hotel is in Osterbeek, which is part of the perimeter where the British were massacred by the Germans. It's a bit of an in-joke, really. Like, this is where we uh, did our deal, you know. Uh, and we, mass that we, we managed to convince the British to massacre their own people, let their own people die, uh, in order to do the deal between the Brits and the Nazis to get Bormann over to the UK. And effectively, what happened then to the money, this is all in the book, The Traitors of Arnhem, mm. uh, the, uh, the money from looted uh, occupied Europe at the end of the Second World War went through Sullivan and Cromwell's law firm in New York, which was the, uh, the Dulles Brothers law firm. And it was laundered into these 750 companies created in Argentina by, not they're not based in Argentina, but Borman created them. He was a bureaucrat in, the, in America and in European countries. And the money was laundered into these 750 corporations Borman had set up. And that is effectively what we're dealing with today, which is a fourth right corporate you know basically a, a financial fourth right uh, and you know the 
The other absolute masterstroke was to put Jews as chairman of, of the many of these companies to disguise the fact that it was Nazi money that had, uh, was behind the companies. So anyway, that's that story is not me. It's, it's me pulling together bits of a jigsaw from other, the other people's work. And the main two books uh, which I used for that were Op JB by Christopher Crichton, which looks at the extraction of Bormann from, uh, uh, from Berlin at the end of the war. And... Uh, Martin Bormann, Nazi in Exile, which is a book by the CBS, former CBS wartime journalist, Paul Manning, uh, which, by the way, his publisher uh, got, I'm trying to think, his publisher had his leg broken and his son was shot dead in the street in New York, Paul Manning, uh, when that book was published in the 1980s. So I think two very important bits of the jigsaw to understand what we're dealing today. I mean, I think people like Whitney Webb have done an absolutely brilliant job. But what I, you know, hopefully I can contribute to our understanding of what we're dealing with is where the money came from for this for, for this mafia empire. Uh, it's Nazi money. Uh, a lot of people say, well, what happened to the gold, blah, blah, blah. Well, this is where it went, I think. You know, this is pretty clear. It was laundered through the Dulles Brothers. I mean, no, no one was going to touch the Dulles Brothers at the end of the Second World War. One of them was mm. running the new CIA. The other one was Secretary of State. And, uh, yeah, they, I, think, I think I'm right in saying that another one of them was the U.S. ambassador to Switzerland during the war as well. So they were kind of, you know, very much uh, uh, on top of where the money is going around. What's, who's making money out of World War Two? Obviously, the Nazis had made quite a lot, looting everything, uh, and you know, then then deciding where that money was going to go after the war. So that's why I think this stuff matters. If you start looking into, you know, these various organisations, which are some of them are absolutely dead secret. Some are just Chatham House rules. You're not allowed to talk about them. And that includes the journalists, right? For example, uh, not allowed to write about it. You're not allowed to publish mm. on. By the way, uh, the bank part of the Bilderberg owns or the private equity firm owns the publication so they're not going to publish anything about the thing that they're not going to publish you know they don't want people to know about uh, but you know my job as a journalist is to look into this I always felt you know especially when I left the BBC and I came across this organization the Bilderbergers I wanted to bottom out an understanding of you know they were obviously a politically powerful organization in the NATO zone in the NATO countries but what was their origin and you know where's all this money come from well it's now pretty clear i think it, you know it's come from the gold teeth of the you know poor people who were uh, in concentration camps and god knows what you know so i just want to clarify something you were talking yeah. about uh, the the military conflict um where the first bilderberg meeting was but it wasn't the first bilderberg meeting in 1954 yeah it's ten, 10 years after the battle so the battle took place in 1944 the British lost. Uh, and, you know, it's always been a bit of a mystery, the Battle of Arnhem, Operation Market Garden, the bridge too far, as to why we lost and how was it such a tragedy? Was it? Oh, it's a terrible thing. Uh, but yes, the Bilderberg, first, the, the first meeting convened in the same spot as the British were massacred. They called it, by the way, the Witch's Cauldron. The British soldiers, you know, after the battle said, oh, we were in the Witch's Cauldron there, you know. And uh, so uh, it was. It was left for uh, ten years, and then the uh, the Bilderberg meeting was convened in the same spot that this battle took place, and that these deals were done. I think it's got their fingerprints all over it. You know, the people mm -hmm. who were involved in them: Desmond Morton, Winston Churchill's private secretary, uh, and Martin Bormann, Adolf Hitler's private secretary. The money went 
from or Borman came right across the first person he met in the British sector according to to Christopher Crichton in his book Op JB was Desmond Morton and he calls it the last great secret of the Second World War and I did bottom out you know bottom this story out I wouldn't be talking about it now if I didn't know it was true you know I spoke to people who knew him very well he died about uh, five six years ago um, and I went had a visit uh, uh, with his wife in her house had a chat uh, the piano that he used to play, had a good chat with her. When I knocked on the door, I came in and she was just making some tea and she said, are you from MI5? I was like, yeah, okay. No, I'm not. I'm just a journalist, okay. But, you know, I bottom this stuff out and, I, you know, I know that this stuff will stand the test of time. Um, and, you know, that, that I think is important to understand that Nazi, you know, the succession, the Fourth Reich. Obviously, you know, many people know about the links between the uh, Nazi occupation in Europe, of Europe, the um, plans of the finance minister, Abs, I think his name was, uh, and the European Union. I mean, we've got a, a ridiculous farce, a pretend democracy where you've got the European Commission who are unelected making the laws. Actually, what they're doing is they're just implementing stuff that the corporations come up with. Uh, and all the MEPs can do, it's just a talking shop, basically, where people like Nigel Farage can go on about how bad it was when Britain was in the uh, EU. Uh, and you get, you know, this, I think there's a very good ha Hungarian MEP, but he can't change anything. He can't really change anything. You know, the EU is just, uh, the, 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 the members of the European Parliament, all they can do basically is just delay stuff. They can't really, you know, it's not a proper parliament at all. It's just a, a sham democracy, a farce. Do you think Hitler escaped to Argentina? No, Hitler died. Bormann escaped. And it's funny that all this stuff about Hitler escaping really started to emerge uh, in the mid-1990s when um, the book Op JB was published about Bormann's escape. So this is, I think it's just a ruse. There's loads of nonsense. Hitler was a completely broken man at the end of the war. And the last thing that, that anybody wanted was, for, including the British, was for Hitler to survive the war. He might talk about all sorts of things they didn't want him to talk about. They knew Bormann wasn't really a Nazi. He was just a gangster that uh, would, was, was quite, wanted to just survive the war, you know. So when it, when it became obvious that the Nazis were going to lose, he was looking to do deals to get out, you know. And uh, so, uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff, talk, nonsense talked about. I mean, a lot of Nazis, of course, did go to South America, particularly people like Klaus Barbie, Joseph Mengler, uh, and the Mossad did the raid um, um, and uh, to get Eichmann and fly him back to Israel and put him on trial and execute him. Uh, but, you know, there was, I think the main store of the Nazi wealth was actually Switzerland. And of course, places like Paraguay became very, a lot of these people, a lot of these Nazis in South America lived close to the borders. So if it looked like one authority was going to come get them, but I think it was Stroessner was the Paraguay leader. Uh, president and he was basically pro-Nazi anyway so they were quite happy over there I mean there was actually a, a, a terrific uh, Stuart Stephen a terrific Jewish journalist in Bristol that went on to the Daily Express and he worked with a guy called Ladislas Farago who's another brilliant Hungarian journalist in the 1970s and they got pictures of Bormann and put him in the Daily Express one Saturday uh, and the headline Bormann is alive you know, uh, was in there. And it's that if you have a look at the photograph, it really does look like the wartime pictures of somebody 30 or 40 years on, you know. And uh, apparently he lived until his night, about, he was about 75 or something. 
over in South America, quite happily in Buenos Aires and anonymously. I mean, he didn't, but he didn't seem to have had much of a face job or anything. Uh, it looked very much like the original Borman from World War II, who was supposed to have disappeared or been killed at the end of the war. Uh, so, yeah, Argentina, these places, I mean, Argentina was largely German anyway. It's a big German contingent in Patagonia and places like that. So it was the obvious place for them to go. And, um, you know, what with a Peronist government with very far right leanings, you know, it's the obvious place for Nazis to go and hang out if they wanted to avoid uh, any consequence. I think there's also another thing that uh, your viewers might be interested in, which is why did not the Mossad go for more uh, Nazis? Well, the answer is they, that Ben-Gurion did a deal with Nelson Rockefeller. Uh, and I interviewed John Loftus about this. Fantastic guy, very interesting bloke. He did, a, I think his book, he was a former special investigator under the Nakata years. Um, and he had access to all of the secret files as well. He did a book, I think it's called The Secret War on the Jews, but Loftus is quite well known. He's done lots of stuff. And he explained to me, he said they were trying to get uh, the vote for, for, you know, 1947 to to approve the creation of the state of Israel. And loads of countries were opposing it, you know. So uh, he got all the South American countries to say yes, uh, but on one, but one with one um, proviso. Uh, and he said to Ben Gurion, look, I can get all these people on side and I can get you. Your, and he said, you can have a country or you can have vengeance, but not both. Make your decision. So there was a deal done in 47 with the Americans and with these um, uh, South American countries that the uh, they would get their state of Israel through the UN, but that they wouldn't go coming looking for Nazi war criminals. And when Eichmann was uh, taken over, there was a whole massive hoo-ha. And it's like, okay, you've done Eichmann, nobody else, right? Don't go coming after these, you know, Jew murderers, just leave them. And uh, and so that's one of the reasons why there was never any great pursuit of these uh, Nazi war criminals after the Second World War had finished. Are there secret societies that you know of that come from the East? Well, I did mention the triads before, the Tongs. Yes, of course. I mean, if you, if you ever go and watch the film, uh, The Man Who Would Be King, which is based on, you know, a bit of historical fact, is Michael Caine goes charging over as part of the British Empire and he does a Masonic handshake out in the middle of nowhere in the Himalayas or something. And they go, oh, you're one of us. You know, so I think a lot of the signs and symbols in the different cults, related cults, are recognized by each other. So, uh, yeah, I think there's quite a lot, of course, going on in the in the East as well. Uh, we haven't actually mentioned either some important ones. I mean, the Order of the Garter, I did mention in 1348, very important. Uh, I think in in the hierarchy around the world, it is a, it is a cult effectively. Uh, there's two, there's 26 members of the Order of the Garter. It was formed not long after the extinguishing of the Knights Templar, so you might say it was uh, really just a continuation of them. Uh, and it's 26 members, which is three times 13, which is two covens, uh, and they are the people that kind of look after um, the, the the succession to the throne uh, in here in the U, in the UK. You've also got the Illuminati. Uh, the Illuminati, you can't really talk about secret societies without talking about them. Uh, I mean, I'm not really sure about their existence today, but most definitely they were a very powerful force in the late 1700s and early 1800s. Uh, the book, The Proofs of a Conspiracy Against All Religions and Governments, was written by John Robeson, who was the, um, he was the, uh, no, secretary of the Royal Society in Edinburgh. Uh, and he was a Freemason and he could see the Illuminati taking Freemasonry over in Europe. 
and uh, it saw that it was a kind of poison that would be a disaster for the future. And his, his expose of the Illuminati, and I think it was 1793 he published it, uh, it, it proofs of a conspiracy against all religions and governments in Europe is absolutely fascinating, brilliant read. And um, yeah, well worth it. Then we've also got the Skull and Bones. Uh, I mentioned earlier about Chairman Mao being funded by Yale University uh, in the 1920s. His network of bookshops, his publications, uh, you know, putting all this communist stuff out around China and the discontent that there was uh, at the time. Uh, but but the Skull and Bones is quite obviously a very powerful group, very powerful secret society. Anthony Sutton has probably done the best work on them. Um, but uh, you know, Yale University apparently was it was a uh, spawn from another. Uh, similar organisation to the Skull and Bones over in Germany, uh, but you know these are this is the you know, presidents, the, the the Bushes, members of Skull and Bones, uh, you know, the, all of the major, many of the major policymakers in the United States, John Kerry, uh, another presidential candidate. You know, lots and lots of people have been part of the Skull and Bones, um, and so that's another very obvious one. That is looks very satanic. It's got the um, the skull and the crossbones. Uh, quite a lot is known about it, but again, no real coverage in the mainstream press at all. You know, connecting, say, a decision that's being made to the Skull and Bones. What this individual is also a member of the Skull and Bones. How many times do you see that in an article? Which, of course, there should be, because these are secret groups that have hidden agendas and they have a firewall between what they have thought of uh, and their activities and. Uh, the general public and the press, you know, so we, you know, they shouldn't be in public office. Nobody from the Skull and Bones should be anywhere near public office. Uh, uh, so I think there's also kind of vanity in being part of one of these groups when people get tapped up at Yale. You know, they get a little tap on the shoulder and they say, well, we, you know, would you like to join our society? Well, Catherine Austin Fitz was tapped up to join the Council on Foreign Relations. I remember, you know, six months ago seeing an interview with her where she said, no, I said to them, no. Uh, I don't want to be down in some bunker with you guys. I want to be up with everybody else, the rest of humanity, uh, trying to make the world a better place and not um, involved in some kind of mass cull. Well, I'm paraphrasing it, you know. But, uh, yeah, I think everyone has to make a kind of decision as to whether they want to take their chances with humanity or whether they want to be part of some cult or clique and sell their soul to them. Uh, by the way, there's I, I only discovered one organization or one country in the world that has a criminal investigation department for the police to investigate secret societies do you know where that is have a guess um england no 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 they're run by secret societies uh, scotland yard no it's singapore and it's because they had to deal with i think a lot of these triads in the past and so, and they, the triads are very, uh, I mean, they will turn up at somebody's, a whole group of uh, whatever, 13 of these people, part of the triad, will come in and they'll do basically a mass threat to an individual. And it's like a kind of chant they do. And they're saying to you, unless you do as we say, we're going to kill you, you know, basically. And, and so Singapore has got a, um, a special police unit which investigates them. By the way, in Hong Kong too, we had a triad style group appear uh, after the protests uh, you know there were protests about three or four years ago in hong kong about the um, lack of democracy as, as that all came in from china uh, and a bunch of the protesters were going through the tube station and, and a triad turned up a whole group of again about uh, 
uh, between 10 and 15 of these guys with massive sticks and they just started smashing all of as they came down the escalator in the tube station all the protesters were being sm beaten up by this triad with with big sticks uh so you know obviously that's that part of the world these things most definitely happen and and also it, important to mention you know because we're talking about what is the object of these secret societies they're always centralizing power look at the united states of europe this is still i mean this is one of the reasons i campaigned against uh, the eu and for brexit is because you know, I think the nation state is is a valuable thing to have. You know, we need to have some kind of local uh, group of people calling themselves a government that, that are accountable to us, not a world government, uh, because the world government will obviously be owned by the super rich and controlled by them. Uh, and that we've seen a United States of Europe being constructed by the EU uh, over the last 15, 20 years. Uh, and we, nobody has ever voted for that. No one. In fact, if they did have a vote across Europe, people would vote no. It's obvious. So they're just trying to do it anyway. And we saw, didn't we, the other day, uh, David Icke being, you know, bless him. I, 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 you know, I don't agree with many things he says I disagree with, but it's absolutely appalling to see him banned, you know, one press of the button from the whole of the European Union. I mean, what the hell is that about? Because he's going to tell the Dutch uh, public uh, what's going on with the um, attack on their farmers. Uh, and, the, and the Dutch government don't want that. Um, you know, this is just ridiculous. So, I mean, as you can see, this isn't the Dutch doing this, it's the whole of Europe doing it. So the secret societies, uh, the Bilderbergers in this case, I think were very, very instrumental in the construction of the EU, uh, have uh, effectively created one single state in Brussels. And of course, just around the corner in Brussels is NATO headquarters. And the EU is now at war with Russia. They might not say they are, but the Russians know they are. Uh, you know, they're behind the, the, the Russians are saying the British were behind these various attacks uh, over the last few weeks. Uh, the attack on the Nord Stream pipeline. Uh, this isn't the just the Ukrainians out in the Baltic Sea with a I don't know if they've got much of a navy, the Ukrainians. That, that's, I thought that was in the Black Sea, but no, they're up in the Baltic blowing up the the Russians are saying that was the Brits. Uh, the Russians are also saying the Brits were involved in in um, blowing up the uh, Black Sea fleet in Sevastopol. You know, so and the Kerch Bridge. So, you know, it seems pretty obvious to me that uh, that Britain and the EU and the United States, the NATO countries basically are are now at war with Russia. Now, do, are we going to, you know, are we going to win? Of course we're not. Uh, and this is, I suppose, it's almost like the, 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 the last stages of the dying empire of Rome, you know, where mm. the Roman Empire has been going on for a while, but uh, the corruption at the top has become so uh, appalling and ridiculous and insane uh, that they're now starting to launch off on you know uh, covid eugenics uh, on what you know on all sorts of crazy ideas to keep their own population down to you know to con them the empire of lies putin calls it to lie 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 all the time about what's really going on uh, and also to start launching this military operation against moscow which is you know, is completely potty. Well, it's not potty. It's, I think, you know, going back to what we were saying earlier about the oath crime, the Catholic Church don't have an oath crime. The Protestant Church don't have an oath crime. The secular world in the West doesn't have an oath crime. The Orthodox Church does. And they say, you're not swearing these oaths. Uh, you know, they're absolutely, you know, it's forbidden. If you're in the Orthodox Church and they discover that you're a Freemason, for example, you have to make a decision. They're not being, you know, too judgmental about it. You have, they say to you, well, either you renounce your oath, you renounce your membership of Freemasonry and you can stay 
in the Orthodox Church, or else you're going to have to leave. It's that simple. You know, we don't we take the Sermon on the Mount seriously, and if you decide you want to become a Freemason and and be active in the church, you can't. It's as simple as that. Um, and that is one thing you can do within Catholicism, and you can do within. Uh, Protestant, the Protestant world. So I think this is actually quite important that the Orthodox Church has kept these ideas. And, and that's one of the reasons why the Templars attacked Constantinople. You know, the, the, the Roman Church had a war in the, I think it was the Third Crusade, maybe the Second Crusade, where they, they surrounded Constantinople, which was the headquarters of the Orthodox Church, and killed everybody in Constantinople. This is the so-called Christian Knights Templar under orders from the Pope. You know, so they were trying to kill off the Orthodox, you know, uh, fellow Christians. Uh, the Russians, by the way, became, I found this out recently, became Orthodox. So they were, I think it was uh, King Vladimir, who was one of their first, like, prince, or he was a prince Vladimir, then he was a king. He sent his missionaries out, or <laughs> emissaries out, to, to go and have a look at the main monotheistic faiths. He thought, yeah, there's, if there is a God, there's only one. So let's go and check out the Jews, the Muslims and the Christians. And his, his uh, emissaries came back, all on horseback, you know, came back to Moscow and, and said to him, well, the Muslims and the Jews won't allow alcohol, but the Christians will. He says, okay, we'll be Christian. And that's, how, that's why the um, uh, Russia became an orthodox country. Uh, because they couldn't, the, the king realised that, that, you know, the Russians loved their vodka and uh, there was no way that they were going to become Jews or Muslims if they weren't going to be allowed to drink. What about the Jesuit order? Well, the Jesuit, yeah, okay, so that's um, a secret order within the Catholic Church um, and the, you know, the Vatican. Uh, the Illuminati was modelled on the Jesuits. So all I'm saying, I mean, I think Weishaupt, I'm not sure if he'd been the originator of the Illuminati, had been a Jesuit, I'm not sure. But uh, what they what they looked at was that, you know, this organisation within the Catholic Church, which is quite powerful, what if we were to use that same organisational structure to have different oaths, different initiation rituals, uh, but to uh, use it for our own personal gain? Wouldn't that be handy? And apparently that's what they did. Um, and I don't know if, if uh, your viewers know, but one of the other things Wheatley talked about was uh, the connection between the Illuminati and the French Revolution, because the Knights Templar, who'd been all been killed by the French king, there was a great grudge amongst these secret societies against the French monarchy after the uh, the arrest of the Templars and the burning of Jacques de Molay, the Grand Master of the Templars. And so they really hated the French aristocracy and they decided hundreds of years later to kill everybody who was descended from that French king in the French Revolution and every single one of them apparently. Uh, Dennis Wheatley talks about this and others um, that were, I guess he was someone who was in Freemasonry at the time and he must have known quite a lot about this. Uh, he was saying, well, that's actually what was going on in the French Revolution. That's why it was so bloody. It's because they decided that every single descendant of uh, Philip the Fair from 300 years previously, is it 300? Just try and calculate, 400 years previously, uh, was going to be killed. <laughs> That's a, a long grudge uh, for, you know, to, for, to be um, uh, put on the French. And, you know, they were set up, basically, the French monarchy was set up much like the, the Tsars were. Um, people, I think the person we must talk about is Albert Pike. He was, he was the grandmaster of, uh, Scottish Rite Freemasonry in the uh, American Civil War. 
Uh, he was uh, he was a Confederate. I think he was a captain or a major in the Confederate Army, but he was also the Grand Master. This is something I've seen for myself in Bristol, where you've got you know the the head of the council, the chief of police, go into the Masonic Hall, and you don't know who the person is, but they're bowing their head to them. You know, some Mason that is their boss basically. But uh, so so Pike allegedly wrote this letter to Mazzini, who was the founder of the Mafia in the Carbonari in Italy, uh, saying, well, you know, we, we need to have these three world wars. The the uh, you can find this the Daily Mail did a little piece on it and the um, Daily Express. So it's actually found its way uh, probably five, six years ago into the mainstream press. But this letter has apparently then disappeared. So it's been quoted from by a few people. It was in the British Museum, but now apparently it's it's disappeared, not to be found. And there's big articles out there. Oh, no, 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 this must be a hoax. It's impossible, you know. But you look at the facts. Uh, the idea is to set up a massive war between the Zionists and the Muslims. Now, you look at what's going on now. I mean, the, the First World War was where the Brits took over, the Ottoman Empire was smashed, the Holy Land, right? The Second World War, the creation of the Zionist State of Israel. And obviously, there's uh, there's the state of Iran, so there's increasing tensions there. But if you if you look at this letter, it does look as if this whole thing has been cooked up over centuries. Now, if you can believe that such plans can people can set plans which might take hundreds of years to come to fruition, uh, then this is definitely one to look at. Uh, and the idea is that both sides are basically at the very top level. Uh, are steering this, making sure that both Israel and Iran are built up to be very strong and powerful. So when they fight, there'll be a very serious war, which might drag other people in, like the Americans, who are basically already down there. The Russians, quite clearly, have got an interest in that part of the world. They'd see a war there as possibly affecting their security through the Caucasus. Uh, and, and then to drag China in. China is very much pro-Palestinian. The Americans are very much pro-Israeli. So you could get the powder keg for an incredible World War III there. So that may not just be a coincidence. Uh, I would suggest your viewers check out that um, Albert Pike Scottish Rite Freemasonry's letter to Matt Zini uh, back in, I think I'm right, I'm right in saying it's uh, 17, uh, no, sorry, 1875, August, the letter was sent. But Matt Zini was, you know, he was just a similar kind of character to Pike over, and he was doing a similar thing to what Pike was doing in the in the Civil War, which was getting rid of the powers of the individual states and centralizing power in Washington. That's what the American Civil War did. Mazzini was doing something very similar in Italy, which was to bring it together of these different kingdoms in Italy to make it one country. Centralizing power is these people's hallmark. In this information war, where can I follow your work? Oh, well, um, uh, okay. So first of all, I suppose the book, uh, the most relevant book to this conversation we've been having is most definitely uh, The Siege of Heaven Reader, which you can buy an e-book. Uh, I think it's around about £10 or something, whatever that is in your currency. And uh, But you can actually buy a physical book as well, um, but they're out of stock at the moment. Uh, that's The Siege of Heaven Reader. It's got a picture on the front cover of a newborn baby with a cattle tag in its ear. You know, so that's really where I'm coming from. There's a, this is slavery they want to impose on humanity. They're a very audacious bunch. And um, uh, then and also that's a free download from Bilderberg.org as well. If you if you don't have any money, genuinely, um, that's available for free because the text is, is all in there. The pictures are a bit pixelated. It's a small, it's like about three or four megabytes or something. 
for a, a long book. Uh, and so that's available. And also um, my book of articles, which is just called The Siege of Heaven, that's just available as an ebook and as a free download. And then the book about the origins of the Bilderberg, which is where we, where we came in with Daniel Esterlin, that's called The Traders of Arnhem, Martin Borman and the Bil Origins of the Bilderberg Group. That is uh, also a physical book, but it's also a download, uh, download and a free download. So they're all via Bilderberg.org. You'll find my weekly podcast, which I did uh, yesterday um, at thisweek.org.uk. Tony Gosling, thank you for joining me in the trenches. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.